Welcome back to the Empire's New Clothes. We're about to speak with Richard Wilkinson. He's a professor emeritus of social epidemiology at the University of Nottingham until retiring in 2008. He co-founded the Equality Trust, and he's well known for writing the book The Spirit Level with Kate Pickett. In that book, and in a lot of their other work, they were able to prove causality between inequality and a bunch of health and social issues within developed countries. So whether you completely disagree or you felt like there might have been some connection there all along and you're not sure, anyone is going to get some pretty neat insights in this conversation. At least I did. So let's check it out. Richard, welcome. Good to have you here today. Nice to be here. Thank you for doing this. Oh, my pleasure. So explain a little bit about your background and how you ended up studying, of all things, inequality and its connection to the health of society. Well, I was one of the first people to be trained in epidemiology who had not done medicine first. Uh, my first degree was economic history. Um, and so I had a more of a social sciences background to epidemiology. And that led to the growth of, um, in a way, a new discipline called social epidemiology, looking at the social and economic determinants of health, and particularly at the huge uh, social class inequalities in, in health, in life expectancy and so on. And uh, my, my work on inequality came out of trying to understand uh, why there are such uh, huge differences in life expectancy in all our societies between rich and poor, between better educated and less well educated, between upper and lower classes, whatever you like to, however you like to look at it. So your somewhat original motivating factor was this big disparity in mortality? Yes. Um, in Britain, uh, I suppose when I first got interested in this, we had a, a five or seven year difference in uh, death rates um, in life expectancy between uh, professional occupations and unskilled manual occupations. That's how British uh, deaths were classified. Oh, wow. Uh, it's now increased um, because the income differences have widened. There's more difference between rich and poor. Um, and if you take uh, the top, um, the most privileged 10% of areas and the least privileged, the most deprived 10% of areas in Britain, you find yourself with something like a 15-year difference in, in life expectancy or uh, even more in, in what's called healthy wow. life expectancy. It's uh, at least as large in the United States. It's uh, usually smaller in countries with smaller um, income differences. So we take that, that motivation you had in this new field, we fast forward, and I would encourage everyone to check out your TED Talk from 2011, I believe, where you um, explain the things that you found very concisely with a lot of charts and graphs that we won't be putting on here. Um, but fast forward, you and Kate Pickett found a causal relationship, and this is huge, between inequality and the general health of society. Do you mind explaining a bit of your core findings? Well, um, not just us, but many people have found relationships between uh, mm. measures of, of health, 
um, mainly objective measures of health, such as death rates, and the degree of inequality uh, in different societies. Um, there have also been, from the 1970s onwards, studies of relationship between measures of violence, such as homicide rates and inequality. Uh, so there are now literally hundreds of studies of those things in peer-reviewed journals. Um, and what we did um, was uh, to show those both in the rich developed market democracies, uh, that there was that um, very reliable relationship between um, in the scale of income differences and uh, um, both uh, death rates and uh, homicide rates um, it, it, relating to inequality. But um, we also looked at the relationships amongst the 50 American states as a sort of separate test bed um, mm. of these relationships. You know, to, and although the, the statistics told us that these relationships couldn't be appearing by, by chance, they're statistically significant, we thought it would be a good thing to check that uh, uh, the same relationship uh, occurred in a quite different uh, test bed, if you like. Um, we extended these analyses from health and um, violence to look at all sorts of other uh, social outcomes which, like those, have social gradients, meaning uh, things that get worse at the bottom of society. Um, so educational standards of school kids are lower in the poorer areas. Um, obesity is usually higher. Uh, teenage birth rates are higher. Um, imprisonment is higher. All sorts of problems have these social gradients. But people have always regarded them as if they were sort of totally separate, one of these problems from another. Although they're all rooted in relative deprivation, um, uh, people hadn't sort of thought that might mean there's an important causal process that they share. But we showed they were also more common in more unequal societies, suggesting that they were responsive to uh, the scale of the differences in status. Um, so that's the, that, that's the thinking we, um, that led to our, our work. The differences that you found, or, or sorry, the causality you found between inequality and these, these health metrics, are you finding them in mostly only the, the developed world? Are you finding them in the emerging markets as well? Well, there's less internationally comparable data um, for poorer countries. Uh, you can't get good figures on um, the prevalence of mental illness, for instance, um, or teenage births and things like that. Um, but uh, we, mm. uh, other people have done studies uh, where you can get data for things like uh, life expectancy and homicide rates. Uh, and some of those studies include over 100 countries. We were looking at a small group where the data is, is uh, very high quality uh, and highly comparable between countries. Um, but uh, there is no doubt about the causality of these relationships. I, I, in my first degree, actually, I did courses with uh, Sir Karl Popper, 
um, the philosopher of, of science and uh, you know he emphasized the importance of testing theories these theories have been tested over and over again not only in the rich developed countries the poorer countries the american states but also for instance in the provinces of china uh, where you find the same pattern um, people sometimes say ah but might the causality flow the other way from all these different problems to uh, inequality but um, we know the mm -hmm. the lag periods between changes in inequality and uh, uh, some of these problems um, and we know which way round they come in order of time um, but supposing you were to ignore all that and say um, uh, somehow the causality is going the other way, you'd then have to think of some other reason why all these more unequal countries um, had more of all these problems with social gradients. You know, why does the US have uh, amongst the poorest life expectancy in the developed world the highest rates of, of homicide, the highest imprisonment, the highest obesity, um, high rates of um, drug abuse and mental illness, um, pretty poor performance in the international um, maths and literacy tests that uh, kids have. Uh, and then a bunch of more equal countries like the Scandinavians um, all do well on all those things. All those problems are moving together, although they appear um, very different. Mm -hmm. You know, imprisonment, health, kids' maths and literacy scores. You'd perhaps think they're all um, driven by totally different things. Um, and of course, there are. They all have some different um, causal processes in them. But they all share this link with social status, greater inequality. And in a way, all we're saying is that problems we know are related to social status within our societies get worse when you increase the social status differences. That's, I mean, it's absolutely obvious. Mm -hmm. It shouldn't have taken research uh, to show this. We should have recognized it just because it's in a way so obvious. Um, and I, I may say also that <laughs> since um, before the French Revolution, I suppose people have intuited that inequality was um, divisive and socially corrosive. Now we have the data, it shows that that intuition was right. Um, it shows that it was in a way truer than we ever expected. So I want to break that down a little more and and go into why does a larger wealth gap or inequality, why does it produce these uh, outcomes? Uh, partly, I mean, the, the very short answer is to say we are highly sensitive to social status um, and that low social status is very mm. damaging. Uh, but to be more specific, uh, and if you take the example of violence, um, why violence increases with inequality, it's because violence is triggered by um, humiliation, disrespect, loss of face, 
you know, if there's one way I can make you respect me, uh, if, if I have no other way, um, it, it, it's, you know, people lash out um, if they feel disrespected and humiliated. And in more unequal societies, uh, those issues to do with social status become more powerful. We judge each other more by social status. We feel more judged by other people uh, according to our social status. Uh, we fear being looked down on. Uh, all, it, it's really that the material differences increase the social distances, increase those feelings of superiority and inferiority in our societies. But if you take something like um, why, why death rates are higher in more unequal countries, um, basically inequality is a social stressor because it puts us one above the other, uh, emphasizes those differences, leads to um, more worries about mm. how we're seen and judged. Um, and uh, stress is a very powerful determinant of health. Um, you know, chronic stress leads to uh, weakening of our immune systems, our cardiovascular systems. It changes physiological priorities. Um, and uh, we see endless results of that process. And basically, uh, chronic stress, the effects look like more rapid aging. Uh, you grow old faster, you become vulnerable huh. to all the diseases of old age sooner. Um, and that was one of the big breakthroughs in our understanding of health inequalities. We used to think that they must be driven entirely by the direct effect of material factors, you know, poor diets or lack of exercise or um, air pollution or whatever, um, exposure to harmful materials at work. But we began to, to realize that uh, these psychosocial factors working through chronic stress were also crucially important. You came upon these, these somewhat wild findings, although you say it should be common sense and what is common sense for one person is completely radical for another, uh, not always, but often. And so you, you put these findings out there that were very new and potentially quite hot-button political issues. Was, was that nerve-wracking at all when, yes, it when actually you were stepping into this newer field in publishing? Um, it means that people who don't like it just say this is politics and they feel free to reject it because they don't like it in a way that, you know, scientific... Even though it's science. ...in another field would not be treated like that. Um, so our work is, and it is scientific work, based on, on very firm evidence, based on, as I said, hundreds of studies in the peer-reviewed journals, and people still think they can ignore it if they don't like it. Um, and uh, it, it was uh, um, very stressful to be publicly criticised as if one had done silly or dishonest things um, by people who just hadn't read the literature. Yeah, I can see how that'd be tough. And there you are getting stressed out about it, knowing what stress does. <laughs> <laughs> yes. 
Um, but I mean, you know, they suggested that we'd somehow rigged it by our choice of countries. Uh, they didn't look at, I think we had four or five hundred mm -hmm. references and they could have looked to see that actually there were many studies with uh, vast numbers of countries in them. It doesn't depend on, on that, the, the few rich developed countries we looked at. So why do you think that is? Why when, and your, to be clear, your findings have even shown that the most wealthy and the most well-off in a society that is quite unequal stand to gain if that inequality is compressed. So why is it that the powers that be, perhaps, or those that knee-jerk react against these findings, why do they do so? What, what in them wants the system to perpetuate as it is, even if your findings are saying, if you go along with this and read this data, it gets better, even better for you? I think rather few politicians uh, have time to read the evidence, though uh, the Labour Party leader yes. in Britain at the time um, uh, asked all his shadow cabinet to read our, our spirit level book. Kate Pickett and I, uh, between us, have, um, I think, given over a thousand lectures, uh, conferences and so on. Uh, so the, the things are beginning to get round and uh, tweeted as well. But uh, there are layers of uh, misunderstanding. Uh, you know, the, the, uh, a popular belief higher up in society amongst the elite is that they are the elite because they are um, better than other people. You know, all societies have had a sort of mythology uh, to justify class differences and inequality. You know, whether you believe that uh, you've ended up um, uh, as low caste because um, uh, you were a bad person in a previous life or whether, um, as the Greeks, that uh, if you're a slave, it's because you have a, a soul made of iron or something, and uh, the elite have souls made of uh, silver or gold or something. <laughs> um, uh, and of course, in our societies, there are those uh, myths that uh, we are, we have very different uh, levels of genetically determined intelligence uh, and of course uh, people thought they demonstrated that with twin studies but now you can do uh, actually decode uh, the genome uh, in cheaply you can look at large numbers of people and have the genetic uh, information in front of you you find actually there isn't much of a correlation between measures of intelligence and uh, uh, genetics. Um, the results of those studies are miserable. Hmm. And of course, the people who are working on that failed research program <laughs> now say, uh, of course, uh, it's, the fact is there isn't just one gene for intelligence. They say there are thousands. Now, now they've changed the story. There are thousands of genes for intelligence. And they all have such a small influence that we can't detect it. You know, that's the way out of the way of dealing with this for failure of a research program. Uh, but it's, you know, that research mm -hmm. program to, sh to show genetic 
justification for class and inequality um, goes back to the Nazis and so on. Um, it's, it's a thoroughly disreputable research program. Uh, and in fact, of course, there are uh, differences in ability between us, um, but uh, those are environmental and differences in, in ability uh, are much more likely to be the result of the class you're in rather than uh, the determinant of the class you're in. But basically we have endless different abilities, whether it's music or um, woodwork or um, spatial things or um, uh, athletics, you know, we've got millions of different abilities and basically what's important is the training you get. Um, you know, I could have all the genes for being a good mathematician, but unless I did a good course in maths, unless I actually learnt maths, I would be a no good mathematician. <laughs> so, you know, it's training that matters, training and practice. So I think that's fascinating that you were taking it there with the way we see ourselves in society as being better than someone else. And perhaps that's, that's what it might be of when we look at your framework and you say to someone who is in a position of power or um, a greater standing over others in society and say, hey, look at this data. If we're less, if, sorry, if we're more equal, things will be better for you. Your metrics will even drop by a little bit even more. But the one thing they can't take with them is their feeling of superiority because that, mu that must change and compress if everyone is equal. If we are more equal, people are less superior. And so perhaps that's what they're unable to let go of. And, and we know that a lot of people do make decisions or vote that are against their economic interest. And so perhaps that's what that is. Is there, is there anything there that you think? Yes, social status in our societies is a very important determinant of well-being. If I move further up in this society, um, my life will feel better. Um, uh, and I'm really, I often say this is not about marks, it's about monkeys. Um, it's about monkey dominance hierarchies. Huh. <laughs> um, and, you know, we have uh, genetic uh, uh, sensitivity to social status. Um, however, humans have, have lived in everything from the most uh, uh, tyrannical hierarchical societies uh, to the most egalitarian societies. We can live in any system. Um, but some work much better for us than others. Um, I mean, if, I, if you look at hunting and gathering societies covering, say, 90% of our existence as anatomically modern human beings with brains the current size, you find that um, those societies were um, almost always extraordinarily egalitarian. Um, based on, on food sharing and gift exchange and so on. Um, the, the, the were not dominant males who monopolized access to the females and who ate first. You know, it wasn't like animal hierarchies. 
um, where the, the weak only get food if, if there's enough left after the, the dominance. Human societies, hunting and gathering societies, were nothing like that. Um, but how we behave, whether in these patterns of, of dominance and subordination, uh, where status is in, so important, or whether in a more egalitarian way, as we treat our friends, um, uh, is, uh, those are responses to the kind of environment we're in. And if we're in a very unequal society, then we play the dominance game. You know, the stakes are high to be as high up as possible. So what changed? Because as you say, most anthropologists agree that our hunting gathering societies were very egalitarian. Yet looking at the last few thousand years, things are very different. What changed? Why have we, some could say, regressed? What, however you want to classify it, if there is this period where we were very egalitarian, there's a few thousand years where we're definitely not. And so what, what changed? Well, anthropologists have always said that it coincides with uh, agriculture. Uh, moving from hunting and gathering to agriculture saw the rise of inequality. Uh, it, now I think the evidence is that inequality doesn't start to rise right at the beginning of agriculture. The earliest uh, slash-and-burn agricultural societies, the uh, herders and so on, uh, are more egalitarian, uh, only fairly insignificant inequalities between people. But um, uh, when you get uh, the very earliest cities, um, they often develop uh, systems of slavery uh, they start taxing the uh, surrounding agricultural land so they get the uh, surplus um, so that uh, the elite can uh, live on that surplus, other people's surplus, if you like. Um, so I think it's the production of the of surplus gave the opportunity to people to um, control that surplus, to tax it. So it had quite a lot to do with this, these mechanisms, these mechanisms we now had of storing and saving value today and consuming it tomorrow, in a sense. Yes, um, I mean the, the earliest. I, I think the earliest really unequal societies were based on on cereals, and they can be stored easily. You know, they don't go bad like. Um, um, many um, plants, wood, berries and so on that can't be stored for a long time, but you can put grain in huge silos. Um, and uh, you can also see that people are growing it. Um, if they're growing root crops, they're less visible. <laughs> uh, so I think that some of the um, early, the anthropologists of these societies, the archaeologists, are suggesting that um, the, the taxing, the surplus, uh, goes with uh, cereal crops. Um, and they talk about it being, those crops being legible, uh, that you could see how much is growing, and so you know, knew how much you could tax people, and writing starts in those societies as a way of keeping records 
of how much mm. people were growing and how much tax they paid. Uh, uh, and that's it's in those very early cities that you get uh, class systems um, and elites who uh, depend on surplus and employ people who have kept going slaves or whatever through the surplus. Yeah, and and this these are civilizations that are somewhat no longer around, and the history is a bit murky, especially there's not a lot of writing and hunting and gathering societies, of course. Um, but, but I almost wonder the way you're describing, it's almost as if things become more complex and there's more ways to manipulate someone or manipulate the system as opposed to hunter gathering. Well, we have some meat right now and it's going to be spoiled in two days. We need to consume it now. There's not much I can do to withhold it from you without just starving someone. And if, if a group of the society doesn't appreciate that if they're stronger they just take it and if they're not they can disband and go do their own society and now that old one is more equal because the lower and the wrong are gone and as you've shown the inequality doesn't have to do with perhaps others around it's in that societal group and and maybe we just became more complex and there's more ways to manipulate as as we do as humans we're quite manipulative well i think probably also to be able to uh, in a class society you can uh, a slave society you can probably employ people to protect you uh, in, as part of an elite mm -hmm. i think the uh, the quality the gift exchange the food sharing in hunting and gathering societies was basically a huge investment in keeping social relationships sweet. Uh, you know, as soon as you mm. can kill big game and you have the um, the tools, the flint tools and so on to do that, you can also kill each other and the weakest can keep, kill the strongest. Mm -hmm. um, and so uh, suddenly we're all vulnerable to each other and we have to keep each, uh, keep relationships sweet. So I think one needs to see those early systems as investments in the quality of human relationships. But as soon as you have police forces, um, you can uh, hoard up uh, surpluses while other people starve. Um, and uh, you can still be safe. That wouldn't be possible, <laughs> hunting and gathering society. No. And this is a, this is a question I do not... It is more just uh, posing it out there of if that's the arc of humanity where in our most simplest forms of society and tribes, there's, there's not this complexity and these ways to alter the system for my own personal benefit against yours. And so as fast forward thousands of years, our societies are very complex. They're, they're, our ability to create mass harm or just construct extremely unequal societies is, is very large. And I, I often see people want to solve these problems with greater complexity, greater technologies. And I wonder, is that even possible? If this is our trajectory from the most simple forms of society where we're the, we're the most egalitarian, and we haven't yet 
once seen technological advance or a different governance system solve this issue of the the that those those um those monkey desires as you said that live deep down inside all of us hasn't yet solved that we haven't created this perfect system and so perhaps we can't we can't solve it with technology and and greater and greater and greater complexity it just gives others a greater ability to enact their power and dominance over others. How do you feel about that? Or do you think we could at some point solve these issues? I think we've got to. And if you think of, uh, think of about two parts of the picture, one is that the need for increased international cooperation. We've got to deal with climate change. That means mm -hmm. international cooperation. We've got to deal yes, with Yes, we do. That. The, the power of multinationals, many of which are bigger than uh, whole nations, we've got to deal with um, uh, problems of, of chemical pollutants around the world. Uh, we've got to deal with uh, inequality. Uh, there are a whole range of problems that demand international cooperation as never before. Uh, we also, our weapons have grown so powerful that we threaten, well, mutual destruction. Um, so again, uh, mm -hmm. we're going to be forced gradually towards international cooperation. Uh, you know, it, it's quite astonishing, I think, that we're still, you know, maintaining forces and technology to kill each other on mass scale. You know, in a, a modern world of interdependence, where, you know, I eat food made the other side of the world or grown the other side of the world and I use, we're using now computers that are, are made the other side of the world too uh, and, and my work, writing and, and teaching and so on, students from all over the world um, and our books translated into many different languages. Uh, so that interdependence is is a new element um, and demands new kinds of relationships between us but also if you think within our societies um, you know I can't just go out today and decide I've got to harness my horse and do some plowing um, I we all work in um, amazingly complicated sets of, of, of relationships with other people who have many complementary skills. So modern production uh, involves the coordination of so many different skills. And indeed, the value of a company is no longer primarily its buildings and machinery. Uh, the value of the company is the bunch of people and their skills and knowledge that have been brought together. So in a sense, when a company is bought or sold, it's mm -hmm. you're buying and selling a group of people. Um, and increasingly, yeah. uh, the need to coordinate skills, uh, it, you can't boss people around. They have got to think 
you know, how are we going to um, make that compatible with this? Does it mean redesigning that, uh, which has to come first? You know, this is a technological problem that has to be solved by the the people with the skills, not something they can be bossed about by a, a set of bosses who uh, control a, a large unskilled manual labor force. It's no longer, that's no longer the situation. And so I think economic democracy, um, where employees control their companies, um, is the way we should be going. And it looks increasingly as if some of those more economic models, whether it's employees having representatives on company boards or whether it's cooperatives or employee-owned um, companies, uh, it looks as if they perform better uh, than the traditional um, firms with a sort of financial elite parachuted in um, uh, who control everything with rather little knowledge of the company. It's the employees who know what goes wrong and how to put it right. So basically I'm saying whether it's internationally or within companies, we need that cooperation. So that question of can we solve this with greater complexity and greater technology, for you it's not can we, it's we need to, and it's more of an existential question. Yes, but I think you also see it in um, uh, in how we are to move towards uh, sustainability, environmental sustainability and, and uh, carbon neutrality. Um, it's interesting, in the Second World War, uh, historians say that the British government uh, decided they had to reduce uh, the social hierarchy and reduce income differences in order to get people to feel that the the burden of the war effort was fairly shared. Um, the, the only way to get people mm. to cooperate in the war effort was to make people feel it was fair. And so that's why even the, the royal family would be wearing um, the austerity clothing materials and um, we had food rationing and taxes on uh, luxuries and subsidies on necessities and uh, all that kind of thing. Um, and if you don't do that, and I, I, you know, I think we've got to do the same thing to gain people's cooperation in, in uh, moving towards sustainability, uh, if you don't do that, you land up as, as Macron did in France. Um, President Macron a year or so ago, he proposed a rise in fuel taxes as a green measure. Um, but uh, the result was massive opposition from uh, the demonstrators who called themselves the, the Gilets Jaunes, the Yellow Jackets all over France, demonstrations in all the cities that mm. went on for months and months uh, and became um, not only a, 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 um, opposition to the unfairness of those fuel taxes, uh, but to the whole uh, tax system. Um, and I have no doubt that if we start 
um, legislating um, or having carbon taxes and so on uh, without any attempt to make the system fairer than it is now, uh, there will be massive opposition. The irony of inequality is that to approach it in a pragmatic way to compress inequality and, quote, solve it, it's not an equal process. People are not equal in solving inequality. The ones who are in power possess a greater power to solve inequality, which I, I find that quite ironic. And so if what what is the number one, say, important choice someone in that position could personal choice personally could do if they're like, you know what, I've seen the light, Richard, I want to I want to do what I can as a person to lower inequality in my society I live in. What, what would you say to them? I think uh, two main um, approaches. One is to uh, pass legislation for employee representation on company boards. About half the member countries of the European mm. Union have some legislation of that kind, mostly pretty weak, but in Germany it's quite strong. And of course, uh, it helps keep the income differences down. Um, and it doesn't, they've still widened in, in Germany as in other countries, but not as much as in Britain and, and the United States, where we don't have that kind of legislation. Um, uh, the other thing is that we have to deal with tax avoidance and tax havens, which again needs international cooperation. Um, mm. The only way to close down the tax havens and stop people uh, hiding their, their wealth away, um, which is, is bad for the tax systems in every country. It means the burden falls um, much more on people who can much less afford, well afford it. Uh, so some of the super wealthy have pointed out uh, that they pay um, a, a smaller part of their, uh, a smaller percentage of their income uh, in tax than their cleaner or secretary. Um, I mean, it's an appalling situation we've got to. So we're getting close to the end time here, and I would like to end on your, I, I read a bit and, and watched some interviews of you lately, and I've noticed you're quite hopeful in the post-COVID world. And I'd like to understand a little more why is this? Well, it's a sort of make or break situation. Uh, I think that COVID has shown us that governments can raise vast sums of money when they want to. Uh, that's happened in one country after another. And I think... Uh, uh, slowly, the increased numbers of people are catching on to modern monetary theory. If you control your currency, uh, you have a, a sovereign currency. Uh, it, it, it's not a matter of whether it has to be repaid or not. Uh, you can the central bank can create the the finance. Um, the only danger of doing it is if there are uh, if there's already full employment it leads to inflation uh, but if there's uh, spare capacity and unemployment then uh, there's no harm in, in in printing the money qualitative easing and i think now people see that that's what governments do when they need to uh, 
I think that COVID has shown us that governments can do much more than we thought they could. Our societies are also more flexible, more adaptable uh, when they have to be. Um, the only thing I think that governments have to bear in mind in, in meeting the demands of sustainability is to make sure that the burden is equally shared that we really are in the same boat together. And that does mean major reductions in income differences uh, achieved either through taxation um, or uh, through um, uh, more democratic companies extending democracy into the economy. I think we have to do both those things if we're going to make the changes that uh, carbon neutrality uh, demands we do. Well, let's end on that. I that's that's a hopeful note, and I hope that we can. It, in this conversation, we've looked back at history quite a bit, and we can see humans are capable of great things and and horrible things. We have this odd capability inside of us where we can be extremely altruistic, and yet also extremely power hungry. And hopefully, going forward, these more altruistic characteristics of our humanity can come forth in this post-COVID world. Yes, I hope so. Well, Richard, I appreciate your time. This has been a really wonderful conversation. I certainly learned a lot. Um, if folks would like to read more of your work, um, any book you'd suggest, or are you on active on social media at all where people can find you? Well, in, in some ways, uh, later books replace earlier ones um, in that the research has moved on. Uh, but I think the two key books are mm -hmm. uh, The Spirit Level that we published um, in 2009 or 8, uh, and The Inner Level we published much more recently um, that, that takes the story a, a bit further. Uh, but both those books are uh, read really uh, are written really to uh, make the uh, evidence available to uh, large numbers of the population. They're non-technical. Wonderful. All right. Well, you have a great day, Richard. Okay. Thank you, and you, and thank you for doing this. Of course. Thanks for watching to the very end. We really appreciate it. If you want to see more content, like, subscribe, tag the notification bell, rate and review if we're on podcasts, and also let us know in the comments below who you'd like us to interview next. We read all of them, and we'd love to hear some feedback. So see you next week.